Part 2 of Book 2, Chapter 14 of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. 3. At Tavy Mansion, Edwin and Harry were told by a maid that Mrs. Hesketh and Miss Orgreave were in the nursery and would be down in a moment, but that Mrs. Clayhanger had a headache and was remaining in bed for breakfast. The master of the house himself took Edwin to the door of his wife's bedroom. Edwin's spirits had risen in an instant as he perceived the cleverness of Hilda's headache. There could be no doubt that women were clever, though perhaps unscrupulously and crudely clever, in a way beyond the skill of men. By the simple device of suffering from a headache, Hilda had avoided the ordeal of meeting a somewhat estranged husband in public. She was also preparing an excuse for not going to Princetown and the prison. Certainly it was better in the Dartmoor affair to escape at the last moment than to have declined the project from the start. As he opened the bedroom door, apprehensions and bright hope were mingled in him. He had a weighty grievance against Hilda, whose behaviour at parting had been, he considered, inexcusable. But the warm tone of her curt private telegram to him, and of her almost equally curt letter, restating her passionate love, were really equivalent to an apology, which he accepted with eagerness. Moreover, he had done a lot in coming to Devonshire, and for this great act he lauded himself, and he expected some gratitude. Nevertheless, despite the pacifism of his feelings, he could not smile when entering the room. No, he could not. Hilda was lying in the middle of a very wide bed, and her dark hair was spread abroad upon the pillow. On the pedestal was a tea-tray. Squatted comfortably at Hilda's side, with her left arm as a support, was a baby about a year old, dressed for the day. This was Cecil, born the day after his grandparents' funeral. Cecil, with mouth open and outstretched pink hands, of which the fingers were spread like the rays of half a starfish, from wide eyes gazed at Edwin with a peculiar expression of bland irony. Hilda smiled lovingly. She smiled without reserve. And as soon as she smiled, Edwin could smile, and his heart was suddenly quite light. Hilda thought, That wistful look in his eyes has never changed, and it never will. Imagine him travelling on Sunday, when the silly old thing might just as well have come on Saturday, if he'd had anybody to decide him. He's been travelling for twenty-four hours or more, and now he's here. What a shame for me to have dragged him down here in spite of himself. But he would do it for me. He has done it. I had to have him for this afternoon. After all, he must be very good at business. Everyone respects him, even here. We may end by being really rich. Have I ever really appreciated him? And now, of course, he's going to be annoyed again. Poor boy. Hello, who's this? cried Ebrin. This is Cecil. His mummy's left him here with his auntie Hilda, said Hilda. Another clever dodge of hers, thought Edwin. He liked the baby being there. He approached to the bed and, staring nervously about, saw that his bag had already mysteriously reached the bedroom. Well, my poor boy, what a journey, Hilda murmured compassionately. She could not help showing that she was his mother in wisdom and sense. Oh, no, he amiably dismissed this view. He was standing over her by the bedside. She looked straight up at him, timid and expectant. He bent and kissed her. Under his kiss, she shifted slightly in the bed, and her arms clung round his neck, and by her arms she lifted herself a little towards him. She shut her eyes. 
She would not lose him. She seemed again to be drawing the life out of him. At last she let him go and gave a great sigh. All the past which did not agree with that kiss and that sigh of content was annihilated, and an immense reassurance filled Edwin's mind. So you've got a headache? She gave a succession of little nods, smiling happily. I'm so glad you've come, dearest, she said after a pause. She was just like a young girl, like a child, in her relieved satisfaction. What about George? Well, as it was left to me to decide, I thought I'd better ask Maggie to come and stay in the house. Much better than packing him off to Auntie Hamp's. And she came? Oh, yes, said Edwin, indifferently, as if to say, of course she came. Then you did get my letter in time. I shouldn't have got it in time if I'd left Saturday morning as you wanted. Oh, and here's a letter for you. He pulled a letter from his pocket. The envelope was of the peculiar tinted paper with which he had already been familiarised. Hilda became self-conscious as she took the letter and opened it. Edwin, too, was self-conscious. To lighten the situation, he put his little finger in the baby's mouth. Cecil much appreciated this form of humour, and as soon as the finger was withdrawn from his toothless gums, he made a bubbling, whirring noise, and waved his arms to indicate that the game must continue. Hilda, frowning, read the letter. Edwin sat down, ledging himself cautiously on the brink of the bed, and leaned back a little, so as to be able to get at the baby and tickle it among its frills. From the distance, beyond walls, he could hear the powerful, happy cries of older babies, beings fully aware of themselves, who knew their own sentiments and could express them. And he glanced round the long, low room with its two small open windows showing sunlit yellow cornfields and high trees, and its monumental furniture, and the disorder of Hilda's clothes and implements humanising it and individualising it, and making it her abode, her lair. And he glanced prudently at Hilda over the letter paper. She had no headache. It was obvious that she had no headache. Yet in the most innocent, touching way, she had nodded an affirmative to his question about the headache. He could not possibly have said to her, Look here, you know you haven't got a headache. She would not have tolerated the truth. The truth would have made her transform herself instantly into a martyr, and him into a brute. She would have stuck to it, even if the seat of eternal judgment had suddenly been installed at the brassy foot of the bed, that she had a headache. It was with this mentality, he reflected, assuming that his own mentality never loved anything as well as truth, that he had to live till one of them expired. He reminded himself wisely that the woman's code is different from the man's. But the honesty of his intelligence rejected such an explanation, such an excuse. It was not that the woman had a different code. She had no code except the code of the utter opportunist. To live with her was like living with a marvellous wild animal, full of grace, of cunning, of magnificent passionate gestures, of terrific affection, and of cruelty. She was at once indispensable and intolerable. He felt that, to match her, he had need of all his force, all his prescience, all his duplicity. The mystery that had lain between him and Hilda for a year was in the letter within two feet of his nose. He could watch her as she read, study her face. He knew that he was the wiser of the two. She was at a disadvantage. As regards the letter, she was fighting on ground chosen by him and yet he could not in the least foresee the next ten minutes, whether she would advance, retreat, faint, or surrender. 
Did you bring your dress clothes? she murmured while she was reading. She had instructed him in her letter on this point. Of course, he said manfully, striving to imply the immense untruth that he never stirred from home without his dress clothes. She continued to read, frowning, and drawing her heavy eyebrows still closer together. Then she said, Here, and passed him the letter. He could see now that she was becoming excited. The letter was from the legitimate Mrs. George Cannon, and it said that, though nothing official was announced or even breathed, her solicitor had gathered from a permanent and important underling of the Home Office that George Cannon's innocence was supposed to be established, and that the Queen's pardon would, at some time or other, be issued. It was an affecting letter. Edwin, totally ignorant of all that preceded it, did not immediately understand its significance. At first he did not even grasp what it was about. When he did begin to comprehend, he had the sensation of being deprived momentarily of his bearings. He had expected everything but this. That is to say, he had absolutely not known what to expect. The shock was severe. What is it? What is it? he questioned, as if impatient. Hilda replied, It's about George Cannon. It seems he was quite innocent in that banknote affair. It's his wife who's been writing to me about it. I don't know why she should, but she did, and of course I had to reply. You never said anything to me about it. I didn't want to worry you, dearest. I knew you'd quite enough on your mind with the works. Besides, I had no right to worry you with a thing like that. But of course I can show you all her letters. I've kept them. Unanswerable, unanswerable, insincere, concocted, but unanswerable. The implications in her spoken defence were of the simplest and deepest ingenuity, and withal they hurt him. For example, the implication that the strain of the new works was breaking him, as if he could not support it and had not supported it easily. As if the new works meant that he could not fulfil all his duties as a helpmeet. And then the devilishly adroit plea that her concealment was morally necessary, since he ought not to, to be troubled with any result of her pre-conjugal life. And finally, the implication that he would be jealous of the correspondence and might exact the production of it. He now callously ignored Cecil's signals for attention. He knew that he would receive no further enlightenment as to the long secrecy of the past twelve months. His fears and apprehensions and infelicity were to be dismissed with those few words. They would never be paid for, redeemed, atoned. The grand scenic explanation and submission which was his right would never come. Sentimentally, he was cheated and had no redress. And, as a climax, he had to assume, to pretend, that justice still prevailed on earth. Isn't it awful? Hilda muttered. Him in prison all this time. He saw that her eyes were wet and her emotion increasing. He nodded in sympathy. He thought, she wants some handling, I can see that. He too, as well as she, imaginatively comprehended the dreadful tragedy of George Cannon's false imprisonment. He had heart enough to be very glad that the innocent man, innocent at any rate of that one thing, was to be released, but at the same time he could not stifle a base foreboding and regret. Looking at his wife, he feared the moment when George Cannon, with all the enormous prestige of a victim in a woman's eyes, should be at large. Yes, the lover in him would have preferred George Cannon to be incarcerated forever. Had he not heard, had he not read, had he not seen on the stage that a woman never forgets the first man? 
nonsense all that, invented theatrical psychology. And yet, if it was true, look at her eyes. I suppose he is innocent, he said gruffly, for he mistrusted, or affected to mistrust, the doings of these two women together, Cannon's wife and Cannon's victim. Might they not somehow have been hoodwinked? He knew nothing, no useful detail, not that was convincing, and he never would know. Was it not astounding that the bigamist should have both these women on his side, either working for him or weeping over his woes? He must be innocent, Hilda answered thoughtfully, in a breaking voice. Where is he now? Up yon? He indicated the unvisited heights of Dartmoor. I believe so. I thought they were shifted them back to London before they released them. I expect they will do. They may have moved him already. His mood grew soft, indulgent. He conceded that her emotion was natural. She had been bound up with the man. Cannon's admitted guilt on the one count, together with all that she had suffered through it, only intensified the poignancy of his innocence on the other count. Contrary to the general assumption, he must be sorrower for an unfortunate rascal than for an unfortunate good man. He could feel all that. He, Edwin, was to be pitied, but nobody save himself would perceive that he was to be pitied. His role would be difficult, but all his pride and self-reliance commanded him to play it well, using every resource of his masculine skill, and so prove that he was that which he believed himself to be. The future would be all right, because he would be equal to the emergency. Why should it not be all right? His heart, in kindliness and tenderness, drew nearer to Hilda's, and he saw, or fancied he saw, that all their guerrilla had been leading up to this, had perhaps been caused by this, and would be nobly ended by it. Just then a mysterious noise penetrated the room, growing and growing, until it became a huge deafening din, and slowly died away. I expect that's breakfast, said Edwin, in a casual tone. The organism of the English household was functioning. Even in the withdrawn calm of the bedroom they could feel it irresistibly functioning. The gong had a physical effect on Cecil. All his disappointment and his sense of being neglected were gathered up in his throat and exploded in a yell. Hilda took him in her right arm and soothed him and called him silly names. Edwin rose from the bed, and as he did so, Hilda retained him with her left hand and pulled him very gently towards her, inviting her a kiss. He kissed her. She held to him. He could see at a distance of two inches all the dark swimming colour of her wet eyes, half veiled by the long lashes and he could feel the soft limbs of the snuffling baby somewhere close to his head. "'You'd better stick where you are,' he advised her in a casual tone. Hilda thought, "'Now the time's come, he'll be furious, but I can't help it,' she said. "'Oh, no, I shall be quite all right soon. I'm going to get up in about half an hour.' "'But then how shall you get out of going to Princeton?' "'Oh, Edwin, I must go. I told them I should go.' He was astounded. There was no end to her incalculability. No end. His resentment was violent. He stood right away from her. Tell them you should go, he exclaimed. What in the name of heaven does that matter? Are you absolutely mad? She stiffened. Her features hardened. In the midst of her terrible relief as to the fate of George Cannon, 
out of her equal terrible excitement under the enigmatic and irresistible mesmerism of Dartmoor Prison, she was desperate, and resentment against Edwin kindled deep within her. She felt the brute in him. She felt that he would never really understand. She felt all her weakness and all his strength, but she was determined. At bottom she knew well that her weakness was the stronger. "'I must go,' she repeated. "'It's nothing but morbidness,' he said savagely. "'Morbidness. Well, I shan't have it. I shan't let you go. And that's flat.' She kept silent. Frightfully disturbed, cursing women, forgetting utterly in a moment his sublime resolves, Edwin descended to breakfast in the large, strange house. Existence was monstrous. And, before the middle of the morning, Hilda came into the garden where everyone else was idling, and Alicia and Janet fondly kissed her. She said her headache had vanished. "'Sure you feel equal to going this afternoon, dearest?' asked Janet. "'Oh, yes,' Hilda replied lightly. "'It will do me good.' Edwin was helpless. He thought, recalling with vexation his last firm, forbidding words to Hilda in the bedroom. Nobody could be equal to this emergency. End of Part 2 of Book 2, Chapter 14